An Instagram post gets an unexpected boost. A TikTok catches in the algorithm. Sometimes that's all it takes to launch someone into internet fame. But then what? This Blew Up is a new podcast documentary that reveals how social media stardom is made. It's a different kind of fame that's not always as glamorous as it looks. From Spotify and the Ringer Podcast Network, I'm Alyssa Bereznak. You can listen to This Blew Up on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Hyundai. What does your next drive look like? Running between meetings? Maybe a getaway with the whole family? Either way, the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the capable SUV that's built for your life. With premium interiors, available wireless charging, and room for your whole cargo and crew. Okay, Hyundai. Visit HyundaiUSA.com to learn more about the all-new 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust, or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hey everybody, welcome back. This is Larry Wilmore. You're listening to Black on the Air. Appreciate you tuning in this podcast. Haven't talked to you guys in a while, so it's nice to uh, get back at the beginning of these uh, shows and say hi. How's it going? I hope you guys enjoyed um, last week's pod. And if you haven't listened to it, uh, please give a listen. I'm interviewing uh, John Meacham on stage talking about his book on Lincoln. Really a lot of fun. Um, I love doing those live events. In fact, I I may do more of those just... um, as a thing in the next year. And let me know if that's something that you guys enjoy is live events. I like to get out there meet people, that kind of stuff, doing the pods uh, live with an audience. It's just a lot of fun. Um, Speaking of that, I was just on John Lovett's pod, um, Love It or Leave It, which I know some of your fans are. And if you haven't heard that, that was a lot of fun. It was uh, right before this midterm election, <laughs> I gave some of my prognostications and stuff like that. We had a great time, but that kind of reminded me how much I like doing this in front of the audience and that kind of thing. Uh, today we have Nelson George on the show who had, um, made the documentary about Willie Mays called say, Hey, Willie Mays. It's on HBO max. And, uh, we have a really cool conversation. Um, really, I was really looking forward to that. We spoke earlier this morning. He was great. Um, so I hope you guys enjoy that. That's coming up today. Also this week, to do a little more self-promotion, is the finale of Reasonable Doubt. That's the show that I'm producing with Kerry Washington on Hulu as part of uh, Onyx, which is a new division over there. Uh, Ramla Muhammad, who is unbelievable, she's so great, is our showrunner. And... Uh, She's just, whew, man, she puts you guys on a roller coaster ride. <laughs> I mean, some of the surprises that she came up with for this, it, not only is it enjoyable, but Rama, she has, she has such a talent and a feel for the audience. I don't think I've ever worked with somebody who has a connection so strongly with it. Um, she worked on Scandal. And had worked with Shonda for a while and kind of knew Carrie through that. 
but the audience reaction to reasonable doubt <laughs> the people that watch it is so entertaining it's as entertaining as the show itself so all props to rama muhammad our fearless leader over there at reasonable doubt and we're crossing our fingers you guys cross our fingers for us to get a second season over there at hulu but please this is the last episode on tuesday uh this week november 15th i believe if you haven't watched it binge the whole thing it'll be a lot of fun binge it with your friends and if you're waiting for it here it comes it's coming so that's a lot of fun um and you know we'll have some stuff coming up uh, at the end of this year and the new year that i'll announce as it comes along and let you know about that speaking of that election man that was that uh really was kind of surprising in a lot of ways right it was supposed to be this big red wave they were predicting you know people are calling it a red ripple or whatever um it just goes to show you most experts don't know shit about you know what people are really thinking out there i mean some things kind of happen but for the most part a lot of it was kind of misguessed right i was just drinking some water but guys come on the turn the uh the takeaway from all of it, and it looks like we're going to have a, a divided government, right? Uh, that's one of the takeaways, which to me, that doesn't bother me because uh, we already had it when it was just the Democrats divided against themselves, right? <laughs> but Biden gets elected. He's got, you know, a majority of the in the House, you know, and he's got, you know, the vice president's vote, the Senate, which gives him basically a majority. And the Dems have to fight themselves. So we've already had a divided government. But, you know, with the Republicans having a slim majority, it looks like, in the House. And I think the Dems are going to keep the Senate. That's what it looks like. Um, which is nobody saw that coming. I mean, tr even traditionally, when you don't even factor in any particulars, traditionally, no matter who's the president, that first midterm, you know, is usually a convincing uh, snapback from the party out of power. So it's really unusual to see this. Um, so what could be the factor here? What do you think? A couple of things some people say. Um, it could be that some of the pundits misjudge some of the issues that are really important to people. I'm not sure if that's true. I think people are concerned about inflation and crime and some of those things. You know, I'm, I'm not sure if that's true. I think people still are worried about that. But I think there's some other issues that are were more motivating people. And I think it's a couple of things. I do think the Dobbs decision did have an effect. I don't know how big of an effect it had, but I always said that Supreme Court decision was so cynical uh, there was no reason to make that decision in my mind. Uh, Roe v. Wade, though not perfect, you know, even as Ruth Bader Ginsburg pointed out to me, was a civilized, <laughs> a civilized compromise, if you will, you know, for a very divisive issue. Because let's be honest, abortion is one of those issues that's, you know, let's say 55-45, if we're going to be generous, 60-40. 60 being the pro the pro choice side, I'm saying, you know, but you could argue we're split in half on it. I don't think we are. I think there's more pro, pro people that will excuse abortion, let's say, at the at one side of it and who, you know, just don't even think about it or whatever. 
against the pro-life side. So it's it's always been a divisive issue and it continues to be divisive. So why make it even more divisive? You know, it's so cynical. But anyhow, I've talked about that already. I think it played one part, but guys, the best part, the best thing, because think about this. Biden was poised uh, to have a red wave. I think he was ready for it, you know, because it's not like he's been blazing a trail. Biden's done okay. I think the job he's done in Ukraine has been underreported. I think he's done a fine job there. But what can you really honestly do with the whole Ukraine thing? And Biden is smarter than he's been given credit for because they keep making fun of how old he is. And let's be honest, he is kind of old. I've joked that it seems like a presidency in search of a president because he doesn't have that normal type of um, charisma for his base that most presidents have. Most presidents at, at least are charismatic to their own base, sometimes to a lot of people, but at least to their own base, right? There's some connection there that the people, ugh, the people who supported him. But let's be honest, in 2020, we voted against Trump. <laughs> you know, that was to get that nigga out of office, right? And Biden was a happy recipient of, of that. And I think this is another example of that, but in a different way. I believe this past election is, and this is from Republicans, which is fascinating, not even Democrats, are Republicans finally getting kind of fed up with the stinkiness that is Donald Trump. He's, you know, he's so repugnant. And I think that repugnancy, I think is, I think, I'm saying I think, I know you guys are out there, Larry, don't believe it. I know, I hear you. I think for some people, it is making a little bit of a dent, little bit of a difference. And I think one of the biggest reasons why is because number one, uh, Donald Trump, Donald Trump doesn't have actual power right now as president. He has kind of assumed power or kind of, um, you know, he kind of has the illusion of power. It looks like, you know, he's a king. He can look like a kingmaker, you know, with his, uh, ability to, um, say that people, you know, that you should support people, whatever, right? All those things that ex-presidents kind of have, but Trump doesn't quite have that, right? He really doesn't have that. People are seeing that a lot of these candidates that he's backing are not doing that well. And some of the candidates who he has publicly been against are doing unbelievably well. Case in point, Ron DeSantis, um, who won handily in Florida and is not a glad hander to Trump at all. He does his own thing. You know, Trump just goes after him, calls him Ron to sanctimonious or whatever, and is already just completely rankled by him. This is fantastic, you guys. It is so fantastic. <laughs> I know I sound excited because here's the thing. You know, I think I would love to see DeSantis and Trump go after each other. It would be fantastic because all of that distraction to me is one of the key ways that I think Democrats can actually get, you know, continue in the presidency, you know, because Trump takes so much fucking oxygen. But I love these people that are standing to stand up to him. It's great. It's going to be a show. It's going to be fun to watch. And all this oxygen that he's using to go after his own party, you know, there's barely enough left to, you know, if Trump is a nominee, which I don't think he's going to be the nominee. I predicted before my unfortunate prediction prediction was that DeSantis would be the next president. I predicted that months ago. I'm hoping that doesn't come true. Yes, I know that was my prediction, 
but I'm hoping my prediction comes true. I'm one of those people that predicts things and then hopes that they don't come through. I don't know if that's, if that's cynical predicting or not, but I hope that doesn't come true. But I do believe if, if DeSantis decides to run, a battle between him and Trump would be fascinating. And I think DeSantis beats Trump, you guys, I do. I really think he does. But that battle would be very, very interesting. Um, and then we'll see if, uh, if Biden decides to run, who knows, you know, but right now it seems like, um, we're waiting on still some of these results to see exactly what's going to happen. Uh, when I was on John Lovett show and thanks John for having me on again, John Lovett, who's great. We talked about, uh, the race in Georgia, the Senate race, uh, between Herschel Walker and Raphael Warnock, which guys, it's so bizarre. Like when you think about it, honestly. Herschel Walker. I mean, seriously. And if anyone is listening to me in Georgia right now, and I said this on John Lovett's show, just don't vote for Herschel Walker. Just don't. Don't do it. Even if you're a Republican and you just want to own the libs, own them a different way. But don't do it by voting for Herschel Walker. If you're a black person who's from Georgia and Herschel Walker was your football hero, let him continue to be that. But don't let him be your senator. Just don't vote for him. Really, honestly. He does not. Herschel Walker, let me put it like this. I don't want this to seem just partisan because, right, I am a Democrat. I want the Democrats to control the Senate. But Herschel Walker offends me as a candidate for the simple reason of, let me put it like this. Um, like, I, I came up the same time as, a, <laughs> this is going to sound weird. Well, I'm the same age as Obama, right? And I, when I hosted the White House Correspondence Center, I even mentioned that, you know, when we were kids, a black man couldn't even be, you know, the quarterback of a football team, let alone the leader of the free world. And that was so emotional to me. It was an, an emotional point. And one of the things I had to deal with growing up, which Barack Obama had to deal with also, is that we always had to be twice as good just to get half as much. And here... Barack Obama, you know, had a single mom, grew up in Hawaii, uh, ended up becoming, you know, professor of the Harvard Law Review, constitutional law professor. You know, he rises um, through the political ranks very, very quickly. Um, just a charismatic star, he's a beautiful speech giver, all that kind of stuff. The speech he gave at the 2004 convention electrified all Americans, everybody was so inspired by it. Um, and it's not just rhetoric. There was so much substance in there too. You know, there's a, a really interesting mind at work behind that kind of speech, right? Um, and then all we hear from the right and from Republicans back then is he's not qualified. He's not fit. Is he even American? You know, and all these things about he's Obama's incompetent, you know, and I was so fucking mad about all that. These motherfuckers, all that shit they said about Obama, he's not competent, all this. Well, he gives a good speech, but we don't think he's prepared for the job. He's not confident. And these niggas can move their mouth to support Herschel Walker. Are you kidding me? Herschel Walker is the epitome of the unfit candidate, black or white. That's that's the irony of all of this. 
of all the shit that that we had to hear about Obama during those eight years, and Republicans actually think that Herschel Walker, that's the type of candidate that America should be getting behind. Are you serious? I mean, this just, it just kills me. And to me, I get it that if you're a sports star, you can maybe win a popularity contest and all that stuff. But I'm sorry, Herschel Walker, you're not voting for a football star. You're voting for a water boy. And this is a water boy who carries the water for just the right, not even the Republicans, but the Trumpy right. And that's it. The man can barely put a sentence together. Um, You know, how many women has he terrified either with his his temper with guns or with making them pregnant and forcing them to get abortions? I mean, he guys, he's so unfit in so many different ways. I mean, personally unfit. But also, if you're just looking at policy, what does he even stand for? He can't even articulate a policy position. This is the man they want in the Senate. But let's be honest, the only reason why they're supporting him is so they can tell him what to fucking do. Not because he has a mind of his own. You cannot vote for this person. It is the worst example. If you care about black people at all, it is the worst example of one of us to be in the Senate chamber. And by the way, this is not an anti-Republican statement. Tim Scott, I have no problem with Tim Scott. Tim Scott is a very intelligent person. He's very, you know, he's very thoughtful. You can agree with him or disagree with him, but you cannot say he's not thoughtful and he's not intelligent and he's not fit to be a senator. He just happens to be a Republican. He just happens to, you know, have different things that he feels are the important things to make a society work than Democrats do. I got no problem with Tim Scott. But Herschel Walker is different, you guys. This represents something different. This is cynicism at its worst. And for me, I'm sorry, as a black American, I don't want that person representing us. Sorry. Do it in a, if if you're that committed to making the community better, do it in a different way. Why don't you be a fucking community organizer? (laughs) Try doing Obama's first job. How about that? You know, do it at the grassroots level. I will applaud you then. But if you're just in there as a water boy, just holding the water for the Trumpy right, fuck you, man. Uh-uh. So you Georgians, you got this runoff coming up. This is very important. Very, very important. Do not vote for Herschel Walker. Do not do it. I'll be checking back in with you soon to make sure that you didn't do that. All right? That's it. Okay. We got uh, Nelson George coming up. Say hey. Willie Mays, you guys, this is going to be good. This episode is brought to you by Hyundai. What does your next drive look like? Running between meetings? Maybe a getaway with the whole family? Either way, the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the capable SUV that's built for your life. With premium interiors, available wireless charging, and room for your whole cargo and crew. Okay, Hyundai. Visit HyundaiUSA.com to learn more about the all-new 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. All right, welcome back, everybody. Uh, such a treat to have this conversation today. He's an author, director, documentarian. This man just does he does it all. He's, he just does a little bit of it all. But he's got a little treat for us in the marketplace on HBO. Say hey, Willie Mays. 
documentary that whose time has come, by the way. And I'm happy to have him on the show. Uh, welcome, Mr. Nelson George to Black on the Air. Hey, man. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it being here. It's so nice to have you here. And what a treat to, uh, man, look at some of this archival film and remember how great Willie Mays was. And whoo, man, <laughs> you know, I was, you know, I didn't get to really see him. I was too young to see the full Willie Mays, you know, I kind of knew of him towards the end of his career and everything. And it's nice to see him in his full glory. What, what was the, the genesis of this project for you? Were you? Did you come in as a big Mays fan or? Well, I, I grew up uh, in, in New York playing stickball and mm. in the 60s stickball, the Giants were one of our favorite teams to imitate. Um, Noam Rochelle had the leg kick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Willie McCovey, Stretch McCovey had a very interesting stance. Friends of mine would try and do like the first base stretch, like stretch McCovey. And right, then everyone, right. you know, tried to do the basket catch. Yeah. Usually that meant they got hit in the head with the ball. Yes, but, exactly. You know, it's, it's a lot easier. He makes it look a lot easier than it was. Yeah. Uh, and then in 72, he was traded back to the, the he was in New York, back to the Mets, right? From San Francisco, right. Yeah. And um, it was like the second coming of, of Jesus in New York. Wow. The Daily News, the New York Post, all of the mm-hmm. papers, talk radio. It was a really big event. And so that led me back into like the Willie that I was too young to know about. Now, you, you grew up in Brooklyn, but you were a San Francisco Giant, even though they were New York Giants, of course. Right. But you, was it, were your parents Giants fans? Was the neighborhood already Giants fans? Oh, no, no, or, no. I, I grew up, I'm a Yankee fan. Okay, you're a Yankee fan, but was it because the Giants were a, more of a black team? <laughs> yeah, Giants were blacker and more Latino. Exactly, right. Which is a big part of, which actually is a big part of the story of Willie and, and the Giants. Yeah. So they had more, you know, even though I like the Yankees, the National League teams had more brothers and had right. more flair. Yeah. So uh, the teams that everyone in, I grew up liking, the brothers and right. They, they were Mets fans because they were National League fans, but right. really the Pirates, the Giants, which were the blackest teams, yeah. you know, and the Cardinals to some degree as well, because they had Gibson and Lou right. Brock. And Lou Brock. So, yeah. um, you know, one way to understand Willie is that Jackie comes in and plays with the Dodgers in 40, 47, mm-hmm. enters the majors in 51, and he's the, the part of that wave. So Ernie Banks, uh, Hank Aaron, Elston Howard, all these good brothers played in the Negro Leagues that people mm-hmm. don't really know. Right. So they they were already had some seasoning at a high level of baseball when they entered. So that wave of black players, which later would include Bob Gibson and, and Kirk Flood and all those brothers. Mm-hmm. Kirk Flood, yeah. They brought a flavor of the, the Negro Leagues. You know, you play two games on Sundays in between after church. So crazy. People gave yeah. entertainment. That's where that's where the word barnstorming really came about because of how the Negro Leagues traveled and they really put on not just games but shows, really, right? Yeah. And one thing you can say about Willie, he always talked about was he would buy a baseball cap a little too tight. Uh-huh. <laughs> he went around such a flew off. Flew right off, yeah. Uh, and that was the kind of uh stuff. So his there's a certain kind of daring to Willie's game. That yeah. Interview people they talk about it all the time. I, I it's funny. I, I did an interview last night with a bunch of guys, old New York Giants fans, like wow. old, right? They go back. Yeah. They're telling me stories about sitting in the polo grounds as kids and Willie scoring from first base 
on a single. You need to re-edit this documentary and get these guys in it. We had a couple of them in, but uh, ultimately yeah. we couldn't, we had to bump them out. But yeah, I mean, the loyalty. Yeah. I think it's two things about Willie. There's the numbers, 660 home runs, 24 sure. all-star games, all that. But it's the intangible. Did you see what Willie just did? There was kind of a, an aura and this wonder and this excitement that his name just produced out of people, right? Yeah, I know it's 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 very unique. Maybe maybe in some degree, Mickey Mantle had it. Joe DiMaggio, maybe. Mm-hmm. Joy. Mm-hmm. One thing that comes up is joy, and I remember watching. So, I think it's April or May of nineteen seventy. I'm watching the NBC game of the week. I remember those. Mm-hmm. Uh, guy hits a line drive in the right center field. Bobby Bonds has got under it, and Willie flies out through the air, catches it in midair, bangs against the fence. Bonds' knee hits him in the chest. He falls down to the ground, unconscious. Bonds reaches into his glove. He's still held onto the ball. Amazing. Uh, stuff like that, that, you know, that doesn't happen. Yeah. Do you think, uh, does it feel like, one of the things that struck me on this, you know, we have kind of a decline of baseball's importance in our culture these days. We've seen, we've seen it happen over a number of years not just in America, but also kind of in the black community at large in terms of its significance, it feels like. Does it feel like Mays, or at least the enormity of his star, has been somewhat forgotten in some ways? It it feels like if you mention it to young people, it doesn't, it's not going to produce the same type of reaction that even, look, boxing isn't as big as it was, but Muhammad Ali's star is still, there's still luster to that, you know? I think the loss, I think starting in the 70s, Mm-hmm. The NFL and now subsequently the NBA are far and away more important in the black community than baseball. Mm-hmm. And it's so weird because, as we know, coming out of the Negro Leagues, yeah, baseball was the number one sport in America, and it was the number one sport in Black America. Yeah, and they were true; they were heroes. Those baseball players to people, you know, yeah, folk folk heroes, bigger than life. You know, they really. I mean, you could see in the footage of even being on Ed Sullivan, you know, even Ed is a little nervous around Willie Mays. It looks like, you know, the way the people treated them, they were bigger than life, right? Well, I would say one thing we argue in the film is that before Ali's emergence, Willie was the biggest athlete in yeah. America, not yeah. just a black athlete, not because it was Bill Russell and Will were basketball, but that was not a majority sport at that right. time. Right. Uh, Jim Brown was big. But right. the end at that point wasn't what it became. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, there were, you know, maybe Sugar Ray was probably the peer, you know, in terms of uh, if you're talking about that level of celebrity. Or I would say Joe Lewis at his height, at the height right. of his fame, maybe because of the war and all that stuff. Yeah. So, so Willie, you know, we have a great time. Willie's on Bewitched. Willie's yes. on the Don Reed show. Right. So uh, at a time when when Black people still were not very regularly seen on TV. There's no regular, I mean, sitcom. There's no sitcoms mm-hmm. yet. There's some specials. Willie is someone who, yeah, Sullivan has him on repeatedly. Uh, he's on The Night Show. He was, I, I always say that Willie is a peer of Sidney Poitier and Sammy Davis Jr. Yeah. And that year, from the 50s into the 60s, when the civil rights movement is happening, and there's these transcendent stars mm-hmm. who, open, who open the eyes of America to the humanity of black people. Let's talk about that in the, you talk about Jackie Robinson, who was such an important figure during that time, but 
the counter to Jackie is almost Willie, right? In some ways, he's apolitical. He's not, you know, Jackie, for all that he did in his, uh, the way that he played baseball, he had to be quiet in some ways. Like he had to suppress parts of his personality, whereas Willie didn't. His personality was exactly what you saw. And there was kind of this freedom about him. Yeah. It's kind of the yin and the yang of, of a black superstar during that era, right? Yeah, it's interesting because uh, one of the things to know about the contrast is I think Robinson was 28. Yeah, well, yeah, he, he was older by the time he went to the Dodgers and played. He'd been yeah. in the Army. He'd been in the U.S. Right. So like, Willie was literally a year and a half out of high school in Birmingham, Alabama. So young, yeah. So uh, when you talk to Willie, he has incredible admiration for Jackie. Mm-hmm. Incredible. But he also was, I think, a little bit awed by him. Mm-hmm. That Willie, you know, that Jackie was this very educated, articulate guy. Mm-hmm. And so, for me, this is my projection, after studying with Willie for a while, he was a little uh, intimidated by the idea of being a spokesperson. Mm. I don't think he felt qualified to be that person. Mm-hmm. And um, even as he got older, Willie's sort of way of dealing with the world was, I'll play well, and I will build a community. Mm-hmm. I will reach out to the Reggie Jacksons and the you can name it, Joe Morgan's another. There's a whole raft of, of players that he took under his wing. Obviously, Bobby Bonds and then later Barry Bonds. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he built this community, of, this network of, of players who came to him for counsel. Mm-hmm. But he was never comfortable being a upfront person. In, in the doc, as, you, as you've seen, yeah. found one, we found sort of one comment, one um, answer back to Jackie's criticism. Uh, and that was the only time in his entire career he really gave an in-depth defense of his stock. And he was kind of nice in his defense, too. He didn't really attack Jackie in the way he defended himself. Yeah, the other thing about Jackie that, that's interesting that we couldn't get into in, in the body of the film is, so he's a Rockefeller Republican in the 60s. Mm-hmm. And by the way, people should know, uh, most Blacks were in the Republican Party up until like the 1950s and 60s. But Jackie also had attacked uh, Paul Robeson as un-American. Mm-hmm. He had also been very critical of Malcolm X. So within the spectrum, I think people tend to have a view of that 60s that everyone was marching in the street and had the no, same. No, no, no. There was a lot of diverse ways, views, and thoughts about how to achieve the same goals. Exactly. But there was, you know, it's the Booker T, W.E.B. Du Bois type of, you know. But I would say this, Larry, that 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 there's more um, gradations within that. So mm-hmm. that Willie's here, he's not an outspoken guy. Jackie is outspoken, but he's also not, uh, he's super critical of many. At the same time, the same wing of the, of the black, sort of black activist, black power movement, who had problems with Willie, had problems with Jackie as well. Exactly, which came around a little later, the, the Ali crowd, if you will. Yes, you know. absolutely. You know, Jackie took it as well and, and got critical. So it, to be, a black activist is a choice. Yeah. Uh, because there's you, there's you dealing with what you're dealing with on a day to day. And then there's, I'm going to go ahead and become a, a leader and speak out about it. And mm-hmm. as we've seen, even in this current era, um, we talk about the LeBrons and so forth, mm-hmm. but most of those brothers aren't, none of those guys are Ali. No one is actually, except for Kaepernick has ever quit their job. Mm-hmm. You know, there's all these levels of what is an activist and how do you manifest that? And what I tried to do here to be fair to Willie to make sure that his that point of view, which was the idea of excelling at your job 
working with you in your community and not necessarily being outspoken was probably the position of most black people in the mid 60s. Oh, thousand percent true. And you know what's significant also, because as you say, the context for a lot of racial relations has been lost and people use, you know, their current glasses to kind of look at those situations, which, you know, good luck. <laughs> you know, it's not going to come out well. But to me, one of the um, significant um, things about Willie Mays is that even, and this is why I brought up Joe Lewis, even more so than Joe Lewis, like young white kids had a black hero, yes. you know, an unabashed black hero that white people really couldn't knock. You know, he he didn't have any scandals. You know, he was, as they say, clean living, you know, he was, had a great personality, all these things, you know. So he was, the 50s was an interesting time. I've heard white people talk about this, you know, of how yeah. Willie Mays in some ways for them, you know, it made it safe to live, to like black people in some ways, you know. I know that sounds weird, but yeah. No, no, I, I had, you know, I'm 65 and, I, and I've talked to a lot of older people. And, yeah. You know, his son talks about um, that Willie humanized, was part of humanizing black people for the masses. Yeah. This also said to me when I first started working on this, you're not going to find one person who has anything bad to say about my father. Hmm. Watch. And I interviewed scores of people, including ones who aren't in the dock. And, you know, dude, he just was, he, he, he didn't drink. Yeah. Smoke. He told me in 1951, I had a 32-inch waist. In 1973, I had a 32-inch waist. Wow. Uh, I, when, when he went on the road, he was the first guy out of the shower. Yeah. He back at the hotel. He didn't go out unless the other players needed to get into a certain restaurant or club and knew Willie could get him in. Mm. He would organize, like, card games, marathon card games, non-alcoholic mm. beverages, mm-hmm. sandwiches, uh, even when he lived in San Francisco, when he was younger, he did hang out, as we talked about in the film. Sure. But when he got to San Francisco, after he got divorced in 62, he would invite people to his house, whether it's Bob Gibson or Hank yeah. Aaron, whatever, for dinner, play pool. He loved to play pool. But I wouldn't say he lived a monk-like existence. That would be, But he lived a very disciplined yeah. life. And he managed to, to be, you know, in an era... Where everyone was drinking, right? And carousing. I mean, the sixties. Like, yeah. I'm, I'm shocked at Willie Mays of all people. Like, the women that you know, yeah. would have been available to him in those days. You know, in that yeah. type of lifestyle, that hedonistic lifestyle. How he didn't fall into that is beyond me. Yeah, it's 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 really interesting, man. That you know, he got divorced in '62, mm-hmm. and he got married. I think in I think in '71 or, or '72. He had a long-term relationship with his, his second wife. Mm-hmm. Um, it was hard to find any, you know, like, you know, anything, you know, that mid-60s stuff. There's a couple of hints of stuff, but mm-hmm. one thing you learn about that generation, they, they don't tell, they don't tell mm-hmm. them at school. Mm-hmm. Whatever dirt he did do, unless that woman's around, you know, he ain't going to tell. Yeah, it's not like the... The Twitter culture of today, this the snitch culture, as I like to call it. <laughs> you know, you know I, I'm sitting across from Willie the first day we interviewed him, and I go, "Oh damn, I was born in '57. Willie was in the major leagues in '51. Yeah. He's been doing interviews longer than I've been alive." Yeah. So yeah. I knew, like, I ain't tricking Willie into anything. That he's going to tell you what he wants to tell you, right. and 
that's going to be it. And how, how did you get him to sit down? Because I know he's he's not the easiest. I mean, he's older now, too, which is tough, you know. But uh, did you have to do some extra convincing to get him to do this? or what, what Well, it took your... a while. I mean, the producers have been after him since 2015. Oh, wow. I came on board in 2019. And we met with him the first time, September 2019, to get his blessing before the pandemic. Okay. Then the pandemic happened, so that's a year of waiting. Um, I will say this, when I first sat down with him, I would say I was treated like a rookie pitcher on the first day of spring training. Mm-hmm. That's hilarious. He, he goes, how long have you been writing? He's like, he's, like, he's, he's, he's testing you. He's oh, testing yeah. you. So when you see that, uh, there's a lot of funny stuff in the, oh, the closing credits with Willie and I bantering. Yeah, yeah that was great. That's, the, that's basically the end of the first day when I realized, okay, stop talking to the brother like an icon. Talk him like he's your uncle from down south. Right. And once that, then I, oh, he sat back. Oh, I see. Okay. And he started going at me. Yeah. And, but it was, it, it opened him up. Yeah. Because he's still, he's one of the ultimate jocks in American history. Absolutely. So he loves that clubhouse stuff. He loves exactly. that. Exactly. You got to give it back. Yes, gotta you got to give it back. Um, I had the chance to meet Willie with Barry Bonds, who's also in your film. I was doing this thing called the Jim Thorpe Pro Sports Awards. It was before the ESPYs. This is in the this is the first year that Bonds went to San Francisco, and they were playing at Dodger Stadium, and we had Willie there to present Bonds an award. And I couldn't believe it. I was there, and and so I got to see them together right at that time. You you talk about it in your film, and and Willie, you know, he was as you say, he was you know still sharp. He was kind of slinging them at us and everything. He was doing all that stuff you're talking about, but he was, he ended up being great. He was just right. great, you know, and you can, and it made Bonds relax because right. Willie was there. Cause I don't even know if he would have let us do that at that time, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, Barry Bonds, fascinating cat. Um, yeah. Getting him by the way, you know, that's we, a good look. Yeah, we, we don't see Bonds in this type of environment. He only did it because it's Willie. That's the yeah. only reason. And also, it, it did take a while. I mean, we first met with him at the 90th birthday event in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Said, you know, introduce myself. We're doing this thing on Willie. He says, I'm really interested in doing it. Cut to, I think it's probably a year and a half, maybe, you know, of talking. Mm-hmm. And, and let's be frank, you know, he's got stuff he don't want to talk about that he's going to be asked about because he's been right. attacked so often. And let's give people a little context for people that aren't into baseball. Uh, Barry Bonds' father was Bobby Bonds, who played for the New York Giants first, and where he and Willie kind of uh, bonded, literally. Yeah, yeah, bonded exactly. And little Barry Bonds uh, adored Willie Mays during that time. He kind of became more of a dad to him in some ways, in terms of how he looked up to him, almost more so than his dad. And he kind of became his his kind of godfather of sorts, is yeah, what he kind of calls him. You know, so he. Uh, you know, his love of both Willie and baseball kind of made him kind of the uh, player uh, he ultimately became. So a little a little context for people who aren't familiar. And then also, you know, Barry, you know, Barry got was a cute part of the whole steroid era in baseball. Was oh, a cute absolutely. Um, and even as he broke every home run record known to mankind. Right. So um, one of the things that's happened, I goes back the first day I met Willie. I wrote down in my notebook the phrase, take care of. Mm. I was six, seven times in that day. It's like um, Piper Davis, his first Birmingham marriage manager, took care of me. Leo DeRocher, when I got to New York, took care of me. 
when Orlando Tapeta came to San Francisco, I took care of him. When mm-hmm. Bobby and so this idea of mentorship, looking out for people, mm-hmm. and um, maybe from coming from a kind of community came where they had to take care of each other in you know Alabama in the mm-hmm. 40s. Um, so the theme of mentorship and father sons. Yeah. So I knew we needed Barry because Barry really that that relationship between Willie and Bobby and Willie and Barry kind of was the summation of all that for me. Of, mm-hmm. of the fact that even in the when everyone else is attacking Barry, Bobby is going to stick by him no matter what because he's yeah. a guy. Right. And that's really who Willie is. Willie is a, a he's a loyal guy, mm-hmm. and either it was Willie or you're not. Yeah. It's very very clear. Uh, and the other thing that really struck me, we start the film talking about Willie's father, Cat Mays, steel worker, part-time reporter, um, seeing his talent, nurturing him in the game as a young boy. And then when I ask Willie, who's the greatest baseball player of all time, or you, he doesn't mention any other player. He goes, well, I'm not the greatest player. I don't do that. Mm-hmm. My father could play ball. He goes right back to his father, even at 90 years old, that relationship so to me, that that's what connected the film. It really made the film, hopefully, not just a baseball movie, but a movie about mentorship and fathers and sons. Yeah, it really, um, this is going to sound weird, but I was thinking of Arnold Palmer, who all through his life, he always mentioned his dad. You know, when he would have interviews, even year, right years before he died, said, my dad told me how to hold a club. And I, he said, son, don't you ever do it differently. And he never did. But it was that that respect that he had of his father that made him that golfer. And, and with Willie, you know, when you think about how he behaved to the public and the press, you directly connect that to his father who told yes. him, son, you don't make any mess. <laughs> you, know, yeah, you, know, yeah. you know, I mean, cause they grew up in Alabama. That was not, that was wise advice when you're growing up in Alabama in the 1930s. Right. And I don't think he ever, that, yeah, like his father's advice, also the advice he got from the Negro League players, mm-hmm. that never left him. Uh, mm-hmm. And maybe it made him uh, a little shyer. Maybe he didn't take mm-hmm. advantage of the space the way that other people would have. But the combination of that advice and his laser-like focus on the game, mm-hmm. like, it's just so much nuance. It's hard to really capture the nuance of what he yeah. uh, knew. Like, he... Uh, several players told me stories about he would watch the outfielders and he could, he knew every, who, how, who had the best arm, who didn't have the best arm. So w- when a ball's hit to left field, he's on first base. I know this guy can't throw me out. Wow. So he's just gone. And, yeah. and that kind of, uh, you know, in the, in the film, we talk about him being the manager on the field. Yes. And uh, we show illustrations of him using his glove. Right. It wasn't like today where they have computer printouts. He knew the pitchers in the National League. He knew the batters. He helped position the players based on his knowledge of the game. So even though he wasn't formally the manager, uh, when he was on the field for his long career as a San Francisco Giants, he was the on-field manager. Mm-hmm. Did he ever want to be a manager? Because uh, his, as you say, his baseball IQ was off the charts. It didn't seem like that. I felt like he needed to play. He wouldn't have been satisfied with not mm-hmm. playing. He did, you know, obviously coach people and mm-hmm. mentor players, but it was more anecdotal. I mean, up until the pandemic, mm-hmm. Willie came to the ballpark every time the Giants were in town. Mm-hmm. He had a, they have a, a room with a chair and a table. 
And he would talk to any of the young players, the, the, the obviously out-of-town players who come in to meet Willie Mays. He never missed spring training in it, ever until the pandemic. So that for him, it was a, I guess you'd say the inside game, mm-hmm. that kind of mentorship. That's what he gravitated to. He loves young people to this day. He was still visiting like hospitals with kids. So I'm not trying to make Willie a saint, but his values are very, very clear. And I think in an era where, where, where everyone is very, um, I don't know, spilling their guts or, or on Twitter talking all the time, he never would have, even when he was young, he wouldn't have been that guy. Mm-hmm. He always would have been more internal and do a lot, you know, he's more like, let me pull your, pull your coat, son, come over here. Mm-hmm. He's from that school. Yeah, and he let his play speak for itself. Absolutely. In, in many ways. Do, could you make a case for him to be the greatest all-around baseball player of all time? I mean, he's the person that they call the five-tool player was first uh, kind of used talking about Willie Mays. He could hit with, hit for average, hit for power, <laughs> run, field, field and, and throw. And throw, right. Those are the five tools, right? My argument was that, because I've gotten into some of these uh, white baseball guys and I've gotten into it a bit. But one of the things that makes Willie great is that he played in the era against the best white players that existed at the time, the best black players at the time, and the best Latin players at the time. Mm-hmm. I've had arguments with people about Babe Ruth and Ty Cobb and all, all those guys. But the bottom line is they played in segregated baseball. Right. And not to say that I'm not denigrating their talent. I'm just saying that when you look at the level of talent that Willie competed against, right. the Columbus days and the, and the, and the uh, Mickey Mantles and the Hank Aaron and the Don Drysdale's. So the, you can make an argument the level of baseball from mid, from once integration hit into the 70s was at a higher level. Now that, that'll, that'll make people's head explode. Arguably one of the highest levels. That- oh, yeah. 47 to maybe 77. If you took those 30 years of baseball, that's hard to beat. This says everything about the era. Walt Austin, who was a famous manager in the Dodgers, says to Willie, the all-star game, man, there's so many more channels. I don't know what to do. Willie says, okay, bat me first, put Clemente second, put Aaron third, put McCovey <laughs> fourth. After that, it don't matter. Wow, <laughs> that's hilarious. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Did Willie and Hank Aaron have a relationship? They did. It, mm-hmm. it got more strained. They were always friendly. They're both from the Negro League. They're both from down south. Mm-hmm. Um, they obviously were competitive in a good way. But the Barry, I think the Barry, Barry's emergence, especially in quote unquote the steroid era, that mm-hmm. put a bit of a strain because, you know, Hank, you know, obviously is the home run king. Yeah. Guy's breaking his record. He's, he's, he's Willie's, you know, Minty, essentially, but also mm-hmm. that he's accused of using steroids. Yeah. There is an event, we almost used some footage from it, uh, where Willie and Hank did a thing together with Bob Costas mm-hmm. maybe five, maybe eight years ago when Willie was still getting around, right? Uh, 
And it's very cordial. Uh, you can tell that, you know, Hank was just not the same charismatic guy as Willie. Yeah. So it's different. Yeah. And, and keeping things moving. Um, and I think Willie acknowledges that, you know, that Hank was probably maybe a better hitter than him. Mm-hmm. It's the all around game that Willie had that excelled. Yeah. Hank was so consistent over such a long period of time. Yeah. yeah. Extraordinary. Yeah. Some of the greatest, you know, the greatest risks in, in baseball history. So I do think that they had a good relationship. I do think definitely Barry's emergence put a strain on it, especially when, you know, because overtly, you know, Hank criticized uh, Barry accusing him of using steroids. So, mm. um, like I said, uh, Willie's loyal. I, I, I wanted to point out another example that, that sort of says a lot about who Willie is. 1963, uh, 64, the Giants have seven Latin players, the most in Major League Baseball. Yeah. They're speaking Spanish in the locker room. Right, right, right. right. Are the manager who's a, 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 a kind of a redneck from down south, but was, you know, manager and played with Willie, tells him to stop. Now, Alvin had made Willie the first black captain in Major League Baseball. Right. He made Willie the guy who was the on-field captain and ran the team. Mm-hmm. So now Willie's in the middle between the Latin players um, and Alvin. Mm. Willie's the one who keeps the players in, you know, keeps the players playing. Um, doesn't undercut Alvin necessarily, but Alvin does get fired at the end of the season. Mm-hmm. In that interview, I bring up Alvin, and even before I ask him, he says, Willie, I don't believe that he was a racist. Mm. So people go, oh my God, why could he say that? Well, to Willie Mays, Alvin Dark put him on, put a black man on. In a, in a leadership position at a time when that, that was done, when that wasn't done. So even if in his heart, he knows that Alvin wasn't a straight arrow on race, he's not going to be the one who's going to say Alvin's a racist. You know I mean, and that's who Willie, and that, you know, he, if, if you do right by Willie, he's loyal to you. He's not going to call you out. Behind the scenes, you know, I'm sure he, he played a big role in Alvin getting fired. Mm. But he's not going to be the guy who, who, who points fingers. And, and that's, that's who he is. So we really wanted to make sure we got that depiction of him. He's a complicated man. He's not, he's not mm. a 19th, 21st century um, guy. He's a product of mid-century America with certain values and certain sense of loyalty. And the same loyalty that he had to Alvin Dark. And some, he, you know, in the face of criticism of Barry, he has some Barry Bonds. Yeah. The same guy. You know, it's interesting that Bonds being so connected to Willie Mays, but he had an opposite relationship with the public and the press. Willie related with the press didn't get more prickly in the mid sixties. Because I, I started, I read a lot of articles and a lot of magazine coverage of mm-hmm. him, and they say, "Hey, Willie Mays, happy Willie Mays." That's the New York Willie Mays, right? Right, right, right. Interesting. Once he got to be a grown man. Yeah. And you know, he's been through marriage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so he wasn't the same guy. Right, right. It was more like, say, hey, hey. <laughs> that wasn't going on once he got to, to the Bay. Ah, interesting. Uh, and he, uh, a lot of the reporters had a very, a lot of guys were afraid of him. Interesting. That's probably some resentment, resentment in that too, I'm sure. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah, so so pe- people's depiction of him, that's what we wanted to deal with in the film that, how he was treated in San Francisco when he first got there. Yeah, and he he didn't hold a grudge against that, it seemed like, either. But, I mean, that's got to be eye-opening where you grew up in Alabama, 
you played in New York, you come to San Francisco thinking it's going to be this, you know, <laughs> this progressive place. And it arguably was worse there than it was in the other places he was in. 1950s San Francisco is not 1960 San Francisco. No, no, no. Uh, it's an ethnic city. It's a very Italian ethnic city. He comes in, you know, as, as someone says in the film, he's playing in Joe DiMaggio's town, playing Joe DiMaggio's position at Joe DiMaggio Stadium. And he plays for the Yankees. He yeah. plays for the Yankees. You know, he didn't even play in San Francisco. But, he, you know, he was a hometown boy. Right. Yeah. And he played He, he played in the Pacific League in the minor leagues, I think, right, uh, DiMaggio? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, and so that 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 was the ballpark that DiMaggio became a star in that the Yankees, you know, found him in. So uh it was it was interesting. I mean eventually, of course, Willie wins him over because he's really he's really made. Of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there definitely was uh, a transition. And I do think that all of that is when you like I talk to reporters now who interviewed me about the doc who talk about I was afraid to talk to him. Um I mean he was never as bad yeah. as yeah, yeah. So it, it there's an arc to his life that they say, hey, it's a great title for the film. And yeah. it sort of gets it. But it's not that that's not the totality. Mm-hmm. The Willie Mays who, who, who I sat in front of uh, is not a guy who opens up. There's been. Yeah. I, I'm not quite sure why he finally decided to do our doc, because he he's never done anything. Mm-hmm. We were in his house with cameras. That never happens. Wow. And it hasn't happened. Even when I look back at, at interviews with them, I see some. And his boathouse, maybe, mm-hmm. but nothing in his house. So for us to get in there and have entry, I guess he feel like this is his statement. Yeah, and there still wasn't a lot. It's still tough to get to know him as a man, too. You know, he still, even today, still gives you the public Willie Mays in in many ways. That's why it was nice that you had that at the end. Yes, that was very his, important to me. His guard down a little bit of who the guy actually is. You know. Even his language had changed a little bit, right? There's a shot in there. Um, if you at the very end when he's we're bantering about the Yankees, he's got a roll of hundred dollar bills in his hand. So here's the context for that. He'd been inside for because of COVID for a year. Mm-hmm. Hasn't been out the house. He still walks around like any old brother from the old with a hunt with a roll of bills. <laughs> he goes to us. You guys hungry? He pulls off a hundred dollar bill. Oh, that's nice. And wants to, wants to know if we want Jack in the Box. Oh, <laughs> and so I said, nice. "Okay, Willie." He said, "How many guys you got?" And we had about four people. I said, "We got about uh, ten people." Mm-hmm. Got ten people. So you know, that was it. He and he ordered us Jack in the Box. That is, it's like him with those little kids in Harlem. You know, yeah. take it up to the ice cream truck type of thing. Yeah, so exactly. We would we would basically the kids. He wanted to know what Jack in the Box we like. You know, I mean, I think that that you've hit on some real your observation about his guardedness versus yeah. It was so important to try and and at least give that mm-hmm. that guy who does cup check. Yes, 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 yes. That's funny. Yeah, there were a couple of surprises in there too. The I had no idea how much he struggled when he first came up to the uh, majors. It's real interesting because here you are. Promising black player at a time when, you know, when you came up to the to the uh, to the white leagues, let's say you were a superstar because they were picking the best of the best from those from those black. You weren't coming in hitting, you know, 225, you know, this. And Willie comes in and goes like, oh, for 24. Yeah, that's crazy. 
it's really people contextually again. He graduated, he's in the Birmingham Black Rams for 48. Yeah. 49 in the 50, he plays in Trenton and he plays in Minneapolis. He joins the Giants in 51. So he literally went from Alabama to Trenton, New Jersey for a while, to Minnesota, to New York City in like two years. I think that was a culture shock. It seemed like he doubted himself too. Like it almost, here's what was interesting. It almost seemed like he believed the narrative that the white leagues were better for a second where he's like, yeah. Oh, am I not good enough for this? And it's like, no, Willie, you're better. Actually. Well, you know, the thing is, he, he tore up, the, he tore up the minor leagues. Yeah. Minneapolis, he, he was in 477, something insane when they brought him up. Yeah. So he, he competed, but yes, going up against players who he knew the names of. Mm-hmm. And also there was only, it was Monty Irvin and Hank Thompson were there before him. I think mm-hmm. it was one of the black in players. San Francisco? Mm-hmm. No, in New York. I mean, in New York at that time, right, right, right. A couple of things I didn't know that I learned. A, there's a story in there where he talks about being called an N-word, you know, mm-hmm. in the leagues. All those players, we think about Jackie in 47. Mm-hmm. Every player who came through for our Negligence played in a minor league town. And a mm-hmm. lot of these were little, his first time they're playing before largely white audiences. Right. And so all these guys went through some form of hazing, racial yeah. hazing. Right. And then the other thing was that most teams in the beginning would either have two black players or four black players. Interesting. Ever three, because they'd have to, they'd have to figure out where to room them. Oh, right. Wow. Giants always, in that era, had four black players. Wow. And that was pretty typical of how they divided stuff up. And that, and the people in that transitional era from 47 to maybe mid fifties. People say racism doesn't affect mathematics. Here's proof right here. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. The mathematical equation for, for, I mean, remember the same thing in, in basketball, you know, there was a whole thing at that same era into the sixties when the colleges started integrating. Mm-hmm. You played, uh, you could play three black players on the road, only two at home at the same time. It was some mm-hmm. kind of, you know, that, that kind of racial numerology, yeah. Sports was very typical of the era. Yeah. It it was interesting after that slump. I was it was very cool to hear Leo DeRocher, you know, the white man, really come to his defense and kind of uh not only publicly uh be a shield and defend him, but even privately kind of oh, yeah. helped him get back uh his confidence, right? Well, you know, it's funny, there's only so much space you can tell all the yeah. story. But there's a picture in the film of Leo, Leo's wife, Lauren mm-hmm. Day, and Willie. And uh, that picture, in the picture, version of that picture was in Sports Illustrated. She's touching Willie's shoulder. Yeah, I mean, I see, Nelson, you're bringing up, this is so important for people to hear, you know. Like, that is verboten <laughs> in those days. Those so little things like that are like you know, culturally unacceptable, right? Yeah. So like I said, Willie, the thing about Willie that's interesting in in this context is it's not like, and this is, you know, his personality is not every black person, but it's his Mm -hmm. choice. He's not going to externalize his racial antagonism. Right. He's going to internalize it and um, not speak about it publicly, which is what, what, what Jackie, you know, got on him about ultimately. Mm-hmm. We had Harry Edwards in the film, who's absolutely brilliant. Yeah, he's awesome. We used like five five minutes, five seconds 
of a of a forty minute lecture he gave on the history of black athlete activism, which is his own documentary. Mm-hmm. But when he said he said that I was a fierce critic of Willie and his whole generation. Mm-hmm. We have the clips of, of Harry and full on, you know, beret, goatee, a black shades, black eighties, black power militant mode. Mm-hmm. But he also said, you know what? If that, if you feel, if he felt like to be the greatest baseball player of all time, he had to sacrifice that part of himself to be at that peak of excellence. Then maybe that's enough. I would argue he didn't sacrifice it. That that's kind of who he was. I, I think so too. I think mm-hmm. that, like going back to this discussion we had earlier, there's a mode in which people look back to the '60s and they think, "Oh, everyone was this." Mm-hmm. That was not the case. Everyone there was a wide range of, of ideas about how to make progress, mm-hmm. and certainly. The city portier being, you know, excelling at the top of your game and as and a black person in a white environment, which is also Sammy, mm-hmm. which is also Willie, um, and some others, that was a that was a a powerful choice to have to make and to be, to embody uh black humanity in a world where every time you did something, you're the first to do. Right. Why do you think uh black Americans African-Americans aren't attracted to baseball anymore. Why, why doesn't it seem to hold any more cultural appeal? Because young, young blacks from the Caribbean or Dominican and that sort of thing, you know, are as big into the game as ever. I, I think it happened in the seventies with money. Mm-hmm. Baseball, no matter how good you are, is a two or three year development process where you, because baseball of all the sports is that the most different kinds of skills to master. Yeah. Hitting is its own thing. Being a good fielder is its own thing. Learning nuances of base running. So once the ABA and the NBA, once those numbers went up, when you started getting guys getting out of high school and when Spencer Hayward uh, and those cats start getting million dollar deals out of high school mm-hmm. and then the NFL marketing was fantastic. And they just, they, they were able to blow up the game. So you had these two things happening. Major League Baseball was not very good at selling itself. It took, it took a lot for granted. NFL did a great job of making themselves seem like contemporary. And then mm-hmm. as basketball's money starts getting bigger and bigger and for younger and younger, mm-hmm. why am I going to spend the time where I have to spend a few years in, in the minor leagues when I can jump potentially as an elite athlete right into money? Mm-hmm. And so I think that had a lot to do with it. I mean, even Willie, when we asked him why he played baseball, he said, well, I knew I could play a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I couldn't get in the, I couldn't, I, he, he played high school football one semester. He was the quarterback. Mm-hmm. He couldn't get in a, a, a C, at a S, SEC program in Alabama or Auburn. Right. Um, basketball, the only really outlet was the Trotters, if you could get on the Trotters, I guess. Right. So if you're a black athlete, it was baseball. And then there was a way that you could make money in the Negro leagues. You could also do winter ball in Puerto Rico. So you could, you know, you could make a living as an athlete in baseball. And even before, and that's even before the major leagues opened up. Yeah. I think as the new options opened for black players and the money became quicker and faster, I think that shifted. You know, I'm trying to remember the last elite black stars that sort of, I think, it sort of went outside of the culture. I think of Strawberry and, and Gooden, that mm-hmm. Met squad. Um, and then maybe Kate Griffey after that. But it's not a lot of names that you, you pop up. Yeah, we have Mookie Betts here in Los Angeles. Um, 
but there's really nobody else, you know. Let me tell you something. Mookie Betts has won a world championship in Boston, Massachusetts, yeah. and in California, both leagues. If he had been an NBA player or NFL player with the same pedigree, huge. No one even knows who Mookie Betts is. No, no. That's what I mean. It's it's amazing to me that you know you would think he'd be very marketable. He's got a great personality. He's an exciting player, almost in the Willie kind of style because he's. He's a little short, but he's got a gun, you know, and and he 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 produces in high, you know, those high context situations where you have to produce, you know, all he's got all the tools, you know. I mean, I, you know, Major League Baseball is a partner in the film, obviously, because mm-hmm. of that footage. Oh, but right, I, right, right, right. Yeah. I don't think they've done a great job, you know. But I, th- I think it's baseball overall, though, because the. Also here in Los Angeles is Mike Trout. I defy, you could go into a Ralph's and Mike Trout, who's one of the best to play the game also, to yes. play the game, not just now, but to play the game. You know, nine people out of 10 would not be able to recognize him, you know. He could just go through and check himself out with his groceries and not get accosted, you know. But a Laker bench player, yes. you know what I mean? I saw you last night with LeBron, you know, didn't you, uh, you were just on their uh, CBA team, you know, it's amazing, you know. I think baseball can do a better job, but I do think the steroid era put them back because here you had, you had, you know, Barry in that era, Sosa, Mm -hmm. uh, McGuire. That was the last time baseball, that run, when these guys hit runs, they hit out of the sports page. I agree. And now they can't celebrate, they don't celebrate any of them. Clemens, Mm -hmm. Well, and there's so many great players from that mm-hmm. era who now have been kind of like, well, we can't really. So there's a huge hole in the narrative of baseball. I think baseball policed itself too much. That's my opinion on it. Um, I agree. I, I think, why are you guys killing yourself like this? I mean, th- they did it in two ways from my point of view. Number one, everybody was doing it. So why are you picking on certain players, you yeah. know, and don't act like it gives you the type of advantage you think it gives you, you know, baseball is a hand eye game first, you know, it's a power game second, but a hand eye game first, you know, I totally agree with you. I never understood what they, you're saying that Barry Bonds hit those more home runs. It's hand eye. Come on, man. Barry Bonds can see pitches and, you know, he's a brilliant hitter. You know, everybody knows that. The other thing was, it was, I thought it was bullshit when all those depositions were supposed to be confidential yeah. and mysteriously they get leaked. So all those players went on the record thinking this is just an internal thing. This is never going to get known. So now of course, you know, it gets out. What are you supposed to do? You know, it's like, you know, people forget that those things were never supposed to to be made public. It was for internal use and all that. And then they got Congress involved. They did it to themselves. I mean, listen, what person in any professional profession in America could take something that would give them a bit more of an edge or a bit, ability to to recover quicker from injury, whatever, and doesn't do it and wouldn't take it? Right. What sports writer is going to not take something that allows them to file more copy more quickly? It doesn't happen. It was bigger in football than it was in baseball, in fact. Yes. You know, you had a lot of players get, you know, their bodies would break down too much, too, in football. And they had some terrible injuries because of it. You know? The other thing that's not discussed in this context is if, if you know, if you read the history of baseball in the 60s, particularly Ball Four by Jim Bouton, mm-hmm. there were uh, amphetamine in big jars in every right. major league. Uh, it was, so you mean to tell me that the players in the 60s were not taking that and getting some kind of advantage? 
Yeah. It's not like this is a new thing in sports. So the Houston Astros, if we want to talk about cheating, <laughs> I mean, it's not just steroids is not the only way to cheat, you know. I feel personally that's part of baseball's problem is that the same way the NBA can can use Jordan and use that whole right. era for the Lakers and if the NFL was great was, you know, using reinvoking the Cowboys of the 90s or the 49ers yeah. or Stanley for that matter. There's a big hole in baseball history. The players that they should be promoting as far as the game, they're not. It's, you know, stop it. Put Clemens in the Hall of Fame. Stop it. Pitching yeah. is, you know, the, what you have to do to be a great pitcher is not about just how strong an arm you have. Stop it, everybody. Act like you know how the game is played, you know. That's just ridiculous, you know, the whole Clemens thing. Yeah, well, you know, one thing I want to uh, talk about, six finger body types and stuff, hmm. is that there was this thing on ESPN, I don't know who this, during the pandemic, I think it came up, that the players from the 60s, you know, they were basically plumbers and farmers. <laughs> yeah, 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 right, right. So <laughs> one of the things we really wanted to do like, is focus on Willie Mays' hands. If you see the shots we have of him. Yeah. His hands are as big as a mitt. Both hands. They're humongous. That's amazing. You know, there's a whole thing at the end of the film where I'm trying to go in with Willie on his hand and he's just crushing me. He's laughing at me. <laughs> That's one of Willie Mays' favorite things. You ever read Willie Mays when you go exactly. in? Exactly. Give him a real handshake and then hang in there. But, uh, but also, we have shots of Willie with his shirt off in the 50s. Yeah, that's he, great. He had an pack. He was cut. He's an elite athlete. Yeah. And a hero. So, and I, it's funny because he was friends with Will Chamberlain. Yeah. Woo. So he tells funny stories about Will would call him little boy. Mm -hmm. That's and funny. Will would hold his arm out like this and say, hold on to my arm. And Willie Mays would grab on Will's arm and he would hold him up uh -huh. like this. He said, that's how strong Wilt was. Damn. So, you know, you can go ahead and, and talk trash or you want to about some of those records, but the elite players, the Jim Browns, yeah. the Chamberlains, the Willie Mays of that era, I think could have played at any time. I remember when Wilt tried to be a boxer for that short amount of time? He was going to box on Lee. <laughs> oh, that's right. That's right. Remember that? Yeah. They did that exhibition, that, uh, that little uh, play thing for... That's right. I mean, you know what's interesting about this era, man, is that we're getting real budgets to make documentaries about yeah. people trying to make documentaries about forever. Yeah. The fact that there's a, there's a big Bill Russell uh, mm -hmm. underway. Um, yeah. The city body thing that Reggie did. The, the fact is, the Louis Armstrong just came out. Mm. And also having you know having black directors. Yeah, I love it. I'm so honored to to, to have a chance to. Uh, I've done so many music pieces over the years, yeah. but this with um, Willie Mays was really amazing, you know. And it's one of the little threads we didn't quite squeeze in the movie was I asked everybody what musician Willie Mays was like. Louis mm. Jasmine. Uh, one guy said Charlie Parker. Mm -hmm. Said Duke C Jam Blues. Mm -hmm. I said um, a train Miles, mm. um, but. He's a peer of all those guys. That's yeah. his era. Yeah. In the film, we had to use the score. We had Marcus Miller do the, the music. So it's very Blue Note, 1950s, 1960s. Sure. That's great. Blue Donaldson, Trax, uh, West Montgomery. So we tried to really keep yeah. that vibe. And I think I have, to, I have to put a commercial in for my friend Chuck B. All right. Uh, Chuck uh, did the closing credit song, The Amazing yeah. Willie. It just went up on Spotify and YouTube and all that great. stuff. So if you see the film and you like the closing credit song, 
Check out Chuck does this fabulous "Say Hey Willie Mays," you know, uh, uh, track, and um, just to get you know Chuck D, another legend. Yeah, it's a natural baseball fan. If I'm gonna compare him to music, I'll say Coltrane. That's what I'll say for Willie Mays. You know, a true original. You know, a legend. You know, more popular than Coltrane, but right, still, right. but the level of of respect when you you know, when John Coltrane, it was like, there's nobody like this, <laughs> you know. I think that's really an analogy because really, yeah. the perspective of his peers is, on the ball field is unmatched. It's bar none, exactly. I agree with that. He wasn't just popular. You're right. The respect. Let me, and I appreciate you for taking time right now. I know you got to go. Let me just ask you one last question. Like, what do you hope is the thing that people can take away from this, especially in regards to Willie's legacy, which I do believe has lessened because of the popularity, unfortunately, and his place with, you know, we can say Muhammad Ali, we can even go, people can even go back to Joe Lewis that even don't know that much about him, but it can still come off the tongue. I never hear Willie Mays when we talk about the great black athletes. I feel like there's a Mount Rushmore of, of the greatest of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'll, everyone votes Ali number one, and I think you know who's going to fight that. Mm-hmm. If you're talking about Michael Jordan, you're talking about uh, Joe Lewis, you're talking about Willie Mays. Willie Mays is in your top five of, of any discussion, mm-hmm. even if baseball is not the sport it was. He dominated the '80s. Excuse mm-hmm. me, he dominated the '60s. He's the number one player of the entire that decade. Mm-hmm. The Giants also won the most games. They only won, went to World Series once, but they won the most games in that decade. He, the Giants were also the number one attraction in Major League Baseball for that whole decade. Amazing. All because of Willie Mays. So I just think that when you look at the greatness and the, and the variety of ways he was great, I think that's the other thing, within yeah. his support. Um, you know, he's an elite athlete in the history of Black America. And we should say an awful lot. Yeah, exactly. The other person who has to be in that Mount Rushmore, I think, is Jesse Owens, too. When we talk about 20th century, does it, we're going to, our Mount Rushmore is going to have to have five or six. It's going <laughs> to be a crowded Mount Rushmore. I tell you. I mean, just the, just the Wilt, the Wilt Kareem, you know, conversation. Who goes up there? Like yeah. in basketball, who gets to go up there? Jordan? I mean, I don't Jordan. know, you know. After Jordan, it's a, you know, then, you know, and but, I, but I, is it, but is it Jordan when we're talking about Mount Rushmore? I've seen, I've seen, I mean, I, I saw Jordan play a lot. Um, yeah. and, um, and also, you know, this, the, he was, you know, we think about the, to compare Willie for younger audiences is yeah. he was dominant like Jordan and mm-hmm. on the field and also not, not very, you know, overtly political like Jordan. Jordan, we always think about the '60s and, and that militant group, but right. the group that came in after them, starting with Dr. J, going through Magic and Jordan, yeah, was a very—they uh, were in many ways like Willie, crossover people, very apolitical. I agree. You know, yeah. even Charles Barkley, the nadir of all that, saying, "I don't have to be a role model. I ain't nobody's role model." Exactly. <laughs> so that was the statement. Uh, say hey, Willie Mays. HBO is it? Is it on HBO now? Has it premiered already? HBO Max. HBO Max, uh, it's a treat, you guys. There's, I love the fact that there's so much color footage, too. I think yes. it's a really nice way, especially for a contemporary audience, to enjoy Willie. Uh, it's about time somebody has done this. And who better than Nelson George? Thanks for being on Black on the Air, Nelson. It's a pleasure having you. Thank you, you. Definitely, man. I really appreciate it. 
My pleasure. Say hey, you guys. Go watch it. Yeah.